one aspect of the biblical counseling movement is our acknowledgement that all of us are counselors. Uh, Romans 15, 14, where Paul says, I'm concerning you, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to counsel or admonish one another. We're all giving each other advice. Some people are you know, more qualified to deal with extremely complicated situations, but we're all constantly speaking, hopefully, truth to one another, and people around us need wisdom as they're going through life. Um, and so this is for all of us. Now, it was mentioned that like I presented this long list of topics. We do quite a bit of speaking, actually, like most weekends. This is the first time anybody's chosen this first topic out of all that list about God as Father. And yet I'm excited about it as I've been reviewing and getting myself ready because it is actually in terms of the present context. And I'm thinking I'm kind of practical in my orientation of how to bring the truth of Scripture to the problems people are having. And there are two broad categories of problems that people are having with fatherhood. And the first would just be that many of us have had very difficult experiences with fathers, and some people you counsel will have had you know, deep pain. Uh, I had originally prepared this message actually for a Father's Day about five years ago. And for some people, Father's Day, or thinking just the word father, uh, makes them feel very uncomfortable. And you know, some people have had absent fathers. Uh, there are... Uh, 15 million children in the U.S. who are growing up in homes without fathers. When I was a child, that would be one in 10 homes were that way. Now it's one in three for kids. Uh, I have one of my best friends. You know, his story is again being raised by his mother when his father never really was involved in his life and how that may have affected him. Uh, Caroline has had a counselee where a woman was, though she was counseling, was pregnant. And she'd gotten pregnant sinfully, is repentant over that. The man who made her pregnant is taking no responsibility. She's still choosing to have the child. She's involved in a good church. But this woman has a father who abandoned her family when she was younger and yet is constantly contacting her. He's a, he's a lazy drunkard, but because she's successful working as a nurse, she's constantly asking him for money and trying to guilt her into uh, giving whatever he asks. Um, Statistically, uh, men without fathers, or especially men, are more likely to be in poverty, to be involved in crime, substance abuse, and have other behavioral problems. Um, there's a book recently by Nancy Piercy about kind of against toxic masculinity, but part of it was describing is was our culture is trying to unfather fathers and to demasculinize men. This is very harmful for children, especially for um, boys. Some of us may have grown up with very distant passive fathers where they were in the home, but they were all wrapped up in sports or they were all consumed with their jobs. Uh, they had little emotional connection with us. And my father and my mother stayed married for 50 years. My father passed away several years ago. I never once saw my father cry in my entire lifetime. My kids can't say that. <laughs> Um, of course, some have just been raised with unbelieving fathers. In Luke 12, Jesus talked about how the gospel would divide families, three against two, two against three, and uh, might even mock our faith. 
I work with seminary students, and some of them, their fathers think they're crazy. You could be in medical school or law school, and you're in seminary. How are you going to make money doing that? Uh, some of us miss our fathers, and uh, they're gone, and, and we, we have regrets about that. So there's kind of one broad category in terms of helping people, which is people who have had really absent fathers or even very negative experiences with fathers, and that's going to affect their ability sometimes to connect with God as father. When the Bible says God is father, they have to be re-educated as to what fatherhood really is. But there's another part I want to touch upon briefly, and it actually is going to relate when I get to the boundaries talk in the last hour, and that is that there is a tendency I see among especially Gen Z, younger adults, to all look upon themselves as victims of bad fatherhood. Now, there are some fathers who have not protected their children, who even molested or harmed or beaten their children. But what Carolyn and I have found in counseling, especially young women, but to some degree young men, meaning you know, like young adults, is if they were raised in a home where there was discipline and they were spanked and they weren't allowed to watch what everybody else could watch and maybe they were homeschooled and they couldn't be normal like everybody else. Uh, and, and so you've got, an, again, you've got some horrible fathers. These are imperfect fathers or imperfect parents. Uh, one of their flaws would often be a lot of law, not enough grace, and that would be I would be remembered. Um, and yet, I, maybe since I'm one of those fathers, I have some sympathy that people who had fathers who were trying to be faithful, and I think last night I talked about affirmation being really important in relationships, and I think a lot of us may have grown up with fathers where we never felt like we could quite meet their expectations, and you know all the things we knew were wrong with us in their eyes, and not enough, and yet, that's a different category from the people who have actually been horribly harmed, abused, and abandoned. And I think part of understanding what the Bible says about fatherhood would be to show some grace and not to cancel fathers as many are doing. And there are many people, again, we'll get to this with boundaries, you're just saying, well, my parents were super strict and they went to Bill Gothard or whatever, or they you know, read the King James Bible every night for an hour to us. And, we got spanked when we lied and did wrong things and therefore, you know, they've wrecked my life and I'm going to have nothing to do with them. There's a big difference between families where the parents professed Christ, tried to be faithful and fell well short. And actually one of the passages that relates to that aspect in Hebrews 12, and I use this with people who are struggling. Hebrews 12.9 is talking about God's discipline of us as children. But he says in verse 9, well, I'll start in verse 7. It is for discipline you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we all had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Now, what I get from that is saying all of us had earthly fathers. By the way, almost now it'd be harder to say that because a lot of us didn't have that, but that was the assumption with that audience. But if you had an earthly father, just realize we will all fall short of the heavenly father. And there's really a contrast. Like 
Our earthly fathers did what seemed best to them. They tried. But it falls way short of God's perfect discipline for us. They had a short time. God, God will be your father forever. And I think some of that would be to show a little mercy. And those of you raising kids or those of you, you know, becoming adults and sometimes your eyes are opened and you see that your parents aren't as perfect as you thought they were. Um, again, there are two categories that I, again, two broad categories I see where this needs to be addressed practically. And as I said, your experience of fatherhood can affect your relationship with God. And one person writes, the word father brought to mind everything a parent shouldn't be. Now, I knew God was a father, but how could I be sure he wasn't like my father? Another quote, for the fatherless, we're frightened by God the Father because we're terrified of our earthly fathers. How can we understand God's love and faithfulness when dad left us because he loved someone or something more than us? How can God be a mighty fortress of protection when dad hit instead of hugged? Another person writes, it's a daily fight to trust that God thinks of me differently than my dad did. Then one person talked about how they overcame these struggles. What changed it all for me, instead of looking at my dad and then looking back to God, I learned to look to God first. I realized if God wasn't my first source of fatherhood, I was always going to be off balance. This recalibration took turning to Scripture to fill my mind to the true nature of God instead of turning to the empty shadows first. So what I want to do is focus on what it means for us to have God as Father. And even though I haven't given this talk at many counseling conferences, I actually assign it quite often for homework for people who have struggled this way. Is to, the talk is online on Sermon Audio somewhere. And you know, I give them the outline that you have and just say, you need to renew your idea of what it means for God to be Father. And that's really central to some of the struggles you have. And I want to acknowledge that the, the two problems I've mentioned, you know, we should have great compassion for people who, you know, one lady, pastor's wife now, who was abused sexually by her brothers and her parents did nothing to protect her. And you know, people have been through horrible things and they need help in understanding God as he really is. And then some people haven't been through horrible things and they need grace. So we need to understand what it means to, to have God as Father. And I think all of us, have a temptation to go back and maybe even some of our theology. We, we have this great view of God in our theology that he's sovereign and mighty and powerful and he judges and he's holy. And yet the Bible also says he is father. And I think sometimes we can get the sense that I never am measuring up to what God expects of me. He's always mad at me. He sees the bad things I do. He's disgusted by me. Yeah, I know I'm saved, but he's just tolerating me. And I have that struggle sometimes. And I pray the Lord's Prayer a lot. And I'll use it as kind of an outline and expand on each phrase. But I know something I need more and more is you know, our Father. And to really think of God as Father the way the Bible reveals Him to be our Father. And then another application of this, of course, is those of us who are fathers. This is the model for our fatherhood. And the last thing I'll talk about is also how whatever our family experience has been, the most important family we belong to is the family of which God the Father is head. So, through Jesus, we are able to call God our Abba Father. Now, in the Old Testament, God is rarely referred to as Father. It, it happens, but it's not very often. 
in Psalm 103. It says, as a father has compassion on his children. It talks about God caring for his people. He's called the father of the nation Israel in the Pentateuch. Uh, the passage I'm actually supposed to preach tomorrow morning in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic Covenant when the Lord is speaking to David about his descendants. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. But actually in the Davidic Covenant, that really stands out. And of course, ultimately the Davidic Covenant is pointing to Christ and the unique relationship of the father and the son. Uh, the word father is very rarely used in prayer. And when it is used, it typically is used nationally as God being the father of the nation of Israel. And so we, when you come to the New Testament and you have Jesus in a, a crucial passage would be John chapter 5. And when Jesus is constantly calling God his father and you know, he was being challenged by the Jews about doing things on the Sabbath, verse 17, it says, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, the Jews were speaking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so for the Jews, this idea of any of us calling God father that way, and of course for Jesus, it's a unique relationship beyond ours. Um, that was that angered them it made them want to kill him all the more and so as you go through the gospels and you see how jesus prays to the father uh, in john 17 his uh, prayer for the church in the future and he just speaks in that way in a very familiar way um, father the hour has come glorify your son you know on, on the cross you know the or before the cross, Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And you can say, well, okay, that's Jesus. But Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. And part of the, the blessing of the new covenant is that God has given us the status as children. Now, I think believers under the old covenant, in a sense, had this, but the new covenant brings that out so much more. And in the work of Christ, our adoption as sons is highlighted. Uh, and this is something wonderful. In Ephesians 2, we're told that we were once children of wrath. And yet, Christ, you know, God the Son became one of us that he might redeem us from being children of wrath. He had to be like his brethren. In, in Romans, that he had to become like us. Calvin writes that Christ clothed himself with human flesh but this was the only way he could render obedience to God on our behalf and set us free. And so the Father gave the Son. And you have this, the picture in the Old Testament when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And it's very moving. And you know, as he's there about to take you know, the knife and plunge it into his son, you know, stop, and the uh, ram is offered as a substitute instead of the son. But then you get to the New Testament and at Gethsemane, and then moving towards the cross, no one says stop. And the Father you know, lays our guilt upon the Son and punishes Him in our place. The Lord, Isaiah 53, looking ahead, the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. But then He will see His offspring. And so it's through Christ that we who were dead in our sin are made alive, we're, we're born again. And 
it's just all over the New Testament so many times this privileged status we now have in Christ that wasn't in the Old Testament expressed the same way. First uh, John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ and the ESV has this better than, I've got my New American Standard that I've been doing for 50 years now, but the ESV uh, translates the Greek more precisely when it says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And so, you know, we, God has given us this new birth. As a result, we have faith. Uh, Ephesians 1 says we were predestined to the adoption as sons. That's God's eternal plan for us. And then in the New Testament, you have this development of this idea of adoption. And especially in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8. So in verse 3, so also we, Galatians 4, 3, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And this is something amazing. Calvin writes, if some scoundrel wished to become the son of a rich man, he would be laughed to scorn and turned away in shame. But what of us poor earthworms full of disease and corruption? Sounds like Calvin, doesn't it? Uh, we're told also as you continue that you know, now as sons we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, you know, God working in us is a blessing of our adoption. And then Jesus repeatedly teaches to call God our Father. I've already mentioned in uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer, but it's just over and over again. And uh, tomorrow morning in Sunday school, I'm going to be talking about worry. And when Jesus in Matthew 6, it's after, just after the Lord's Prayer, He says, your Father knows you need these things. You know, that the reason you shouldn't worry is because God is your Father and He cares for you and it's it's not trusting him to see to 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 worry that way luther writes there is more eloquence in that word abba father than all the orations of demosthenes or cicero put together um, and then just in the new testament uh, at least 40 times paul refers to god as our father and i would just add that when the bible speaks of god as our father it's only those who have come through christ sometimes the world talks about the universal fatherhood of god uh, that's not how the scripture speaks it's a unique privilege of those who were chosen by god to the adoption those who to whom god gave faith to trust in him and through christ have received the adoption and the inheritance and then uh, for those of us who are fathers as we learn about God's fatherhood to us, that should also affect how we relate to our children. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Um, I have three adult sons, and 41, 39, and 35. And none of them is walking with the Lord right now, which is a great burden to us. Yet God still wants me to love them as a father. 
And one way my wife Caroline is a great help to me is she keeps <coughs> pushing me towards them. If one of them calls on the phone, she walks in and basically sends me the signal, stop doing whatever you're doing and engage. Now, she never says those words, but that's the silent message conveyed. Um, why do we love them? We love them not because they're worthy. We love them because they're ours. And in our case, God gave them to us. And then the Bible says, as a child of God, we enjoy many great privileges. And I will just kind of rattle through several of these. We could spend all morning just on this. But in Ephesians 2.18, it says, Through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, one of the most guilt-producing songs ever written was, if you know the Cats in the Cradle, have you ever heard that song? And we'll have a good time then, Dad. I know we'll have a good time then. And you read it and just want to weep, especially if your kids are grown like, I was so wrapped up in this other stuff and I never spent enough time with my kids. So, um, and yet we have responsibilities, right? You know, your kids want to play with you and you realize, I got to go to work. I got to pay the bills. I got to do the taxes. Um, and earthly fathers, sometimes because of their sin, are not accessible to their children. And sometimes because of our finiteness. We just don't have the bandwidth to do everything. And yet our Heavenly Father is always ready for us to come into His presence. He, he's infinite. And He always welcomes us. Chapter 3, verse 12. We have boldness and confident access through faith in Christ to come before the Father. And we can, we can ask Him for things. We can petition Him for things. And He's glad for us to come. Now, this is another place where you could jump off and I'm going to be limited so well, what should I ask for? Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it'll be open to you. What is the context of those verses in Matthew 7? It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the sermon that says we should be poor in spirit and meek and that if we're angry, we're murderers. You know, we should not be anxious. We shouldn't have treasures on earth. We, our, our religion should be sincere and not to be seen by men. So when he gets to the ask and it'll be given to you, I don't think it's like, I would really love to have a Tesla. I would really, by the way, if you get a flat tire, you will not wish you had a Tesla. <laughs> Happened to my son. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, I think in the concept, I want those things that I fall short of every single thing you've set up until now. May God help me to be a person who's poor in spirit and meek and, and all of these things. And in, in Luke eleven thirteen, in a parallel passage, he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him, what do I need? I don't need a Tesla. I need more of the Spirit of God. I need the power the Spirit gives me to perform the things God calls me to do. Um, seeking those things that are very best. Now, we also submit our requests knowing that we can trust him to do what is best. That when God doesn't give us what we ask, uh, we have to trust him that his ways are better than our ways. If you if you ask, you know, Jesus talks about a father, if you ask him for bread or a fish, he won't give you a stone or a scorpion. Sometimes we ask for scorpions. <laughs> Sometimes we ask for stones. Actually, there's a Garth Brooks uh, song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Have you ever heard that song? And Where it's like, I guess I'm in Tennessee, that's probably better shot. By the way, when I tried this other place, they have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, you know, he sees his old girlfriend and he realizes, oh man, am I glad I got my wife and not her, even though I was praying I'd get her. And, but, you know, 
trusting that God knows best. 1 John uh, 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. But then it has to be according to his will. And part of it is who knows better, your father or you, what's best? And there have been so many times in our lives we thought we wanted something. I've had times in my life when our church in San Diego I was trying to get a building. And it's hard to do that in Southern California, even 30-something years ago. And there was a building we wanted to buy, and we had the money, and they kept messing with us. And I was so upset. Then God gave us a much better building. He knew he was going to do that all along. I was like, why isn't he you know, closing the deal? He knew what he was doing. And again, application for us is we should be accessible to our children. We're not infinite and we're not perfect. But again, I'm speaking now as someone who's dealing with grandchildren. Uh, I was actually last week in Orlando for the three days I was invited to be with my son, his wife, and our two little grandchildren in such places that exist in Orlando. And it was inconvenient and expensive, but we wanted to be with our grandchildren. I think the regrets older men have is that I was so busy doing stuff that I didn't have enough fun with my kids. And that's actually, I've written some things about rebellion and teenagers and parenting. But, you know, I think just having fun with your children, enjoying your children, helping them to see you enjoy them. And again, life is crazy when you've got kids. But, uh, you know, to listen to them and to hear them well. the The time is very short. And then God also, we have access to him. He provides for us. And some of that will be, um, you know, he, we say, give us today our daily bread. And then when we're tempted to worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, it says your father knows you need these things to, to trust him to meet our needs. And then the scripture says he's actually given us the most important things. Ephesians 1 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing under the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And you know, Ephesians is a book I know pretty thoroughly. I make my students preach through it when I'm teaching a preaching class. And you know, just listing the blessings we have, we have the Spirit indwelling us. We have a new nature. We have the Word. We have the fellowship of the saints. And there are about 20 or 30 things I could rattle through. Uh, we are heirs, Galatians 4, 7. We're, we've been adopted. I mean, it's not enough that God would have forgiven our sins. That would have been enough to be slaves in His house. But He forgave us our sins and adopted us as sons. Um, He's prepared a home for us. In John 14, famous passage, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place to you. In my Father's house, there are many dwellings. And so, you know, every possible good provision He's given us. So again, as for us as earthly fathers, we want to be appropriately generous with our children materially, but even more so spiritually to give them the true riches that we have in Christ, to pray with them, to read the scriptures to them, to set an example to them. Uh, And then another aspect of God as Father loving us is that he disciplines us. That's a part we don't always enjoy. This was also in the Old Testament. Hebrews 12, which I read just a moment ago, part of it is actually coming from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which said the same thing, that God, you know, disciplines those whom he loves but in the context in Hebrews 12 there's this emphasis of God as father 
uh, doing what is necessary. Um, and again, our discipline as parents is going to be imperfect, and this is where sometimes working with young adults who are not old enough to have had their own kids and see how hard it is, but old enough to be able to judge their own parents, just to recognize it's a lot harder than it looks, and maybe when you have kids you'll be a little more humble. Um, we as earthly fathers discipline our children imperfectly. They do wrong things, and we don't notice it. Uh, sometimes we accuse them of something they didn't do. We over-discipline, we under-discipline. Uh, Lou Priolo has a book called, uh, it's called The Heart of Anger, and he has like 25 ways we as parents fail, fall short in provoking our children to anger. When Ephesians says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And you go, here's all the ways we do it. Um, God is the perfect father. He disciplines us for our good. And his discipline of us is never punishment. It's to care for us. Spurgeon writes, God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins. God has punished them already in the person of Christ. Neither the justice nor the love of God can exact again what Christ has already paid. And Hebrews 12 tells us God's purpose in verses 11 and 12. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, and yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And as our Father, you know, by the way, as children, our goal is to be happy and comfortable, and God's goal is that we be holy. Who's going to win that? <laughs> and... He's going to bring things into our lives. And James talks about this. Peter talks about this. One of the most incredible passages to me in the whole scripture is in Hebrews chapter 5. And in verse, it's talking about Christ and his humanity. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Okay. Do you catch what's amazing about that? It says that Jesus in his human nature had to learn. There was no sin in him. But he was in some ways incomplete in his humanity. And his humanity was completed. His perfection was perfected through the trials he suffered throughout his life. Okay, here's the deal. If Jesus needed to go through trials in order to become all that God wanted him to be, where does that leave us? Uh, we, we need discipline to become what God wants us to be. And you know, Hebrews 12 says, discipline proves that you are God's son. You know, that what father is there who, who doesn't discipline his children? And you, I mean, you see this sometimes, right? Where actually having unbelieving children and watching them not discipline their children because they don't believe in it. And it's painful to watch. That's, that's not good parenting. Well, God won't be guilty of that. Then, of course, we need to submit to that discipline. So, again, for children, be thankful if you have parents who discipline you because a lot of children are free-range children and nobody's telling them what to do and they're getting into a lot of trouble. And it's a blessing to have parents. But they're not going to do it perfectly. Sometimes it's not going to be fair. Sometimes you think it's not fair, and 10 years from now you realize it was fair. And then we as parents, discipline, part of being like God is that we can be just lazy. Like, 
I'm so busy. Do I really have to stop what I'm doing and deal with this? And, and all of that, I don't like conflict. Now, the great sin of Eli, who's kind of the classic bad parent, 1 Samuel 2.29, God accused him saying, you have honored your sons above me. That you know, he, he was more concerned about keeping, in this case, his young adult sons happy than pleasing God. And we need help. Another aspect of God our Father is He forgives us when we fail. And this is so much, you know, I've already quoted some from Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children. But verse 10, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Um, this is something, again, speaking to us as earthly fathers that, or some who have struggled with earthly fathers, is that there are many children who have this sense that I was never really accepted by my father because I didn't get into whatever college he thought I should get into. I didn't make the grades. I didn't succeed in athletics. Or I was disobedient and got in trouble. And the scripture says that if you're a child of God, there's nothing you could ever do to make God stop loving you. And that's the calling we have as parents as well to reflect that. And I think this is part of it is not just discipline, but also affirmation and being thankful to God for what he, you know, is being done in their lives. And that we welcome the back. And this is, again, the one reason the most beloved parable probably is the parable of the prodigal son. It, because it's a picture of God's love for us. As we repent, he welcomes us no matter how much evil we've done, no matter how we've neglected the duties he's given us. But of course, one reason that resonates so much is because in the real world, there are prodigal sons and daughters. And yet that's the kind of love that parents have. That nothing could ever stop us from loving you. That's what God is calling us to do. Um, another passage, it doesn't use exact language of parenthood, but it's just so beautiful I can't keep going without reading it. It's more in the context of marriage. In Isaiah 49, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, but the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Um, and I've seen, again, earthly parents even, who have, have shown that kind of compassion. And then, you know, God will always be faithful to you. And this is where it gets into the difficulty of sometimes contrasting um, our earthly fathers from God as Father but God provides an answer to those who feel like they've been forsaken by earthly fathers. And Psalm 27 is an amazing psalm. I don't have time to expound the whole thing. I'm not complaining about that. Just focusing on one thing. If you look at Psalm 27, look at verse 10. It's just a stunning verse. The first time I noticed this verse, we actually had a homeschool group of little tiny kids who had memorized the psalm. And I'd read it many times and had never gotten it. But hearing all these little children read verse or memorizing verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. That's thousands of years ago. Even if your parents have forsaken you, the Lord will take you up. And then continuing in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. 
uh, verse 13, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Just wait for the Lord. And so, again, in counseling, for someone, when they hear the word father, they're tempted to think of the smell of alcohol or the pain of the abusive hand. And, um, you know, I, I know of people who, again, I have one of my fellow elders is completely estranged from his parents because they had particular views of fundamentalism that what, you know, our church believing in God's sovereignty and some of the things the parents found offensive is they're shunning their son and that's, that's so wrong. And yet, even when you're estranged, and I know people, they, they will send cards and letters to parents or vice versa and gifts and they just get returned unopened and um, it, it's heartbreaking and some have been horribly mistreated and what's the answer? So you turn to the Lord and He will do for you what your father failed to do. He is the answer. And even those who have lived with a horrible example don't have to be controlled by that. Uh, another really fascinating passage, and some of these you'll just have to go back and read the whole thing when you've got time later, but Ezekiel 18 is a fascinating passage because it deals with three generations and the the first generation, there's a man who's righteous and practices justice and he, you know, he does all the things the law says, doesn't do the things the law forbids. He will surely live, verse 9. But then in verse 10, he may have a violent son who sheds blood and all these other things. And there's a lesson in that, by the way, as well, is that even faithful fathers sometimes have rebellious children. And you don't blame the father. It says the son who sees his father's good example and doesn't follow it, verse 13, will be put to death. But what I'm getting towards is verse 14. This very wicked father who disobeyed the law in every imaginable way, rejecting the good ways of his father. Verse 14, now he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he has committed and observing does not do likewise. So you grow up. I mean, in one sense, I grew up with the father. I, I love my father. My father was not a believer. My father was an angry man. My father had pornography in the house, which is a bad thing for me. You know, that my father had many qualities that were not what I wanted to be, but I don't have to be my father. That by the grace of God, I can choose to follow the Lord instead. I can choose wisdom instead of folly. It's not some determined, a lot of people are afraid of my parents ruined me by being too strict or being too loose or whatever, they're bad example. No that as you turn to the Lord, you can be free of these things. Another amazing passage is 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers for the precious blood is of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He's saying the blood of Christ has redeemed you from the foolish evil ways of fathers that were forefathers who were idolaters and wicked. And so even where your parents have failed, even if they were abusive, uh, that you know, there are people writing books now about you know the body keeps the score and if you've been abused, you're going to be an abuser, or you're going to be broken for the rest of your life. Um, there is truth to the fact abuse affects people even physically. 
but it's not some deterministic thing because they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They don't even believe we have a spirit. They just believe we're physical beings. Things happen to us and messes up our brains and reprograms us and we're a mess. We have so much more hope to give people than that, don't we? Is that we have a Savior who has redeemed us from the sins, the examples of our forefathers and the wrongs they've done to us and enable us to live a new life in freedom. There's hope. There's hope. Like Ezekiel 18, you have a very wicked father who mistreats you. You can be the son who chooses to follow or the daughter who chooses to follow in the ways of the Lord. And then in Luke 18, when Jesus is talking about the call to discipleship and you know, Peter says, you know, we've left everything to follow you. And he says, Verse 29, I tell you there is none who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at the time, at this time and in the age to come eternal life. You know, even Jesus, when his family was not yet understanding and believing in him and they came, I think, in Mark 2, you know, to try to get him. And he, you know, behold, he says, these are my, my mother and my brothers. These are, you know, that were part of his family adopted in and so, you know, for us as believers, we have an understanding of God's Father. We need to think about these and, and then study these. And then those of us who are fathers, we want to emulate that, which is possible in Christ. And then, I don't know each of you, I know there are children here, is that it's good you have parents who love you and invite you to come to church and hear the Word of God. But God invites you to be part of His family, not just part of your earthly family. And in Christ, to acknowledge your sin. Don't blame your parents for how messed up you're afraid to be. Acknowledge that Christ has come to bear in his body the punishment our sins deserve, to make us new. And then whoever's in Christ is a new creation. Then we can be even more than our parents would have made us to be uh, because of him.